you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Harvard Business School professor Amy Cuddy has been studying first impressions for more than 15 years and has discovered patterns in these interactions. In her book, Presence, Cuddy says people quickly answer two questions when they first meet you. Question number one, can I trust this person? Question number two, can I respect this person? And psychologists refer to these dimensions as warmth and competence, respectively. And ideally, you want to be perceived as having both. Interestingly, Cuddy says that most people, especially in business, believe that competence is more an important factor. After all, they want to prove they're smart and talented enough to handle your professional needs. But in fact, warmth and trustworthiness is the most important factor in how people evaluate you. From an evolutionary perspective, Cuddy says, it is more crucial to our survival to know whether a person deserves our trust. It makes sense when you consider that in caveman days, it was more important to figure out if your fellow man was going to kill you and steal all your possessions than if he was competent enough to build a good fire. While competence is highly valued, Cuddy says it is evaluated only after trust is established. And focusing too much on displaying your strength can backfire. Cuddy says that certain business people are often so concerned about coming across as smart and competent that it can lead them to skip social events, not to ask for help, and generally come off as unapproachable. The overachievers are in for a rude awakening when they're not considered for career-enhancing opportunities because no one got to know them or trust them as people. If someone you're trying to influence you does not trust you, you're not going to get very far. In fact, you might even elicit suspicion because you come across as being manipulative, Cuddy says. A warm, trustworthy person who is also strong elicits admiration, but after only you've established that trust, does your strength become a gift rather than a threat? Don't immediately write people off. Certain personalities take longer than others to develop a lasting relationship. Give it time. Don't give up. In most cases, it'll be worth it. However, certain people you will never be able to develop a relationship. It's them, not you. Move on. Skip Worth explains, all stressed up and no place to go. All Stressed Up and No Place to Go represents a blueprint for building or rebuilding one of the most important cathedrals, you, after the personal fires in your life. For over 36 years, stress, its effects on the body, and life management skills for mediating the harmful effects of chronic stress has been my passion, my personal cathedral. Throughout the years, I've spoken to well over 1,000 audiences on some form of this topic, and for good reason. Stress is now recognized as the number one killer. This is not the world according to Skip. This comes from the American Medical Association. In fact, the American Institute of Stress estimates that 90% of all visits to doctors are for stress-related disorders. How can this be? Have you ever picked up your newspaper and read a headline stating, another person killed by stress? Not likely. Stress is a killer by proxy and is behind the five leading causes of death in America. 
Several weeks following September 11, 2001, I was invited to be the guest speaker for a Chamber of Commerce. I eagerly accepted the offer, but my thoughts quickly turned to, what can I say to this group that will help to lift their spirits, to give them hope, to help them to reclaim those parts of their lives that have been spinning out of control? America was still hurting. My audience was still hurting. The memories of that horrible day still haunted them. My speech, all stressed up and no place to go, was written precisely for this occasion. In essence, it's an overview of the seven characteristics of stress resistance or strategies to help after the fire. Much credit goes to Dr. Raymond B. Flannery, Jr., who authored the book, Becoming Stress Resistant, a must-read. We all know people who just seem to glide through life, and even though they encounter difficult life circumstances, they always bounce back. What do they have that others don't? And if they have it, can we have it also? How much of it do we need? Is it possible to incorporate what they do into our lives and become more like them? Yes. In studying these individuals, researchers such as Dr. Flannery, Dr. Herbert Benson, and Dr. Hans Seeley, among many others, have identified characteristics these people have in common that make them less vulnerable to the harmful effects of stress. Characteristics that add years to your life and life to your years. Building a better cathedral. The seven characteristics of stress-resistant people or those who come out of the fire are as follows. Number one, those who come out of the fire take personal control. When confronted with a problem or a stressor, these people take charge. They take self-initiated, self-directed problem-solving strategies to resolve the problem. They don't roll over and wait for others to come to their rescue. They're empowered, not overpowered. They know what personal resources are available to them, and they bring them to bear. After the great fire of 1666, or more recently, the horror of 9-11, feelings of being out of control were pervasive. However, in both instances, these feelings were replaced with planned, organized, and self-directed strategies to rebuild their lives. Number two, those who come out of the fire are task-involved. All of us need a reason to live, a purpose in life, a task that we are personally or existentially committed to. Examples of task involvement include our families, our jobs, church activities, hobbies, volunteer projects, even our pets. We need to feel like we matter, that we make a difference. We know it is self-esteem. We strive to become valued partners in our life's journey. Have you noticed that when a person retires from work but fails to fill that once-occupied space with something meaningful, they often wither and die? Boredom is a very powerful negative life force and is best avoided. The German philosopher Nietzsche wrote, A person with a why to live for can bear most any how. Keep building those cathedrals. Number three, those who come out of the fire seek social support. We need one another, and this need is biologically rooted. You may tell yourself, well, if it weren't for all these people, I'd feel more sane. Quite the opposite is true. Research shows that people with few or no close contacts die at higher rates for every major cause of death. Recently, chronic loneliness was risk-equated to a one-pack-per-day smoking habit. If you're a lonely smoker, you're in deep dew. Just for a moment, reflect on all the helpful social exchanges in your life. Love, friendship, affection, trust, respect, support, empathy, nurturing, dignity, appreciation, listening, caring, and bonding just to name a handful. We need one another. We always have, before and especially after the fire. Number four, those who come out of the fire make wise lifestyle choices. This is where the rubber meets the road. Mark Twain wrote, the only way to keep your health is to eat what you don't want, drink what you do not like, and do what you'd rather not. 
Unfortunately, far too many Americans subscribe to that notion. In 2001, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, reported that only one-fourth of American adults exercised enough in the 1990s. Only 25% of adults met government recommendations for physical activity. Nearly 30% reported no physical activity at all, except for blinking and clicking. The CDC recommends 30 minutes of moderate exercise, like walking five times a week, or 20 minutes of vigorous exercise, such as running, cycling, rowing, or swimming, three times a week. The 30-minute requirement can be broken down in chunks as small as 10 minutes with everyday activities such as gardening. Walking may be the perfect exercise. Regular physical activity, such as walking, is probably as close to a magic bullet as we will come in modern medicine, says Dr. Joanne Manson, Chief of Preventive Medicine at Harvard. If everyone in the United States were to walk briskly 30 minutes a day, we could cut the incidence of many chronic diseases 30 to 40 percent. Modifications in livestock could prevent or delay 75% of illness and disease. This is startling. What comprises the remaining 25%? Genetics, for which you have no control over, and environment, for which you have very little control over. That 75% modification in lifestyle is a large, powerful stick for which you have complete control over. Just for clarity, lifestyle encompasses your diet, exercise, stress management, sleep, safety, substance abuse, smoking, excess of alcohol, drug abuse, as well as other lifestyle factors. When you make wise lifestyle choices, your cathedral becomes your fortress. Number five, those who come out of the fire have a sense of humor. When I was young, I remember hearing on a television variety show, laughter is the best medicine. And I remember thinking, well, that sounded great, but how do they know that? Do doctors prescribe laughter for their patients? Sure, laughter feels good like a warm blanket, but, but the best medicine? In recent years, a great deal of scientific evidence supports that assertion. Humor and laughter stimulate the immune system, lowers blood pressure, increases endorphin levels, that's the hormone that makes you feel good, decreases stress, helps oxygen to be utilized more efficiently, and helps to control pain. Too bad we can't put humor in a pill form and bottle it. Researchers discovered on average toddlers laugh 400 times a day. Adults laugh only 15 times a day. My first impression? What a ripoff! What price am I paying by giving up 385 laughs? Actually, my laughing habits are more like the toddler's. Researchers also found that anger, the opposite of happiness, triples mortality rates, and that whining, which is anger through a smaller opening, has similar consequences. While building your cathedral, perhaps you might consider whistling while you work. Number six, those who come out of the fire espouse religious values and have an ethical regard for others. This probably comes as no surprise to most of you, even in our get-ahead-at-any-cost competitive environment. All of the great religions of the world say the same thing. Love your neighbor. You remember the golden rule. Do unto others. Dust it off, because it still applies in a deep and visceral way. Studies show that religious people tend to live healthier lives. They're less likely to smoke, to drink, to drink and drive, says Harold Koenig, physician, associate professor of medicine at Duke. In fact, people who pray tend to get sick less often, as separate studies at Duke, Dartmouth, and Yale universities reveal. Some statistics from these studies. Hospitalized patients who never attended church have an average stay of three times longer than people who attended regularly. Heart patients were 14 times more likely to die following surgery if they did not participate in religion. Elderly people who never or rarely attended church had a stroke rate double that of people who attended regularly. In Israel, 
religious people had a 40% lower death rate from cardiovascular disease and cancer. Also, says Koenig, people who are more religious tend to become depressed less often, and when they do become depressed, they recover quickly from depression. This has consequences for their physical health and the quality of their lives. What goes on in our personal cathedrals is powerful medicine indeed. Number seven, those who come out of the fire are optimistic. I'm fortunate because I inherited this one from my mother. Throughout my youth and adulthood, she was the epitome of optimism. Light, cheery, funny, and encouraging. She was one of life's cheerleaders. Optimism, a close cousin to happiness, protects the heart and the lungs, boosts the immune system, reinforces self-esteem, and helps reduce long-term stress. Studies now prove that happy people are more likely to get and stay married, have friends, and participate in organizations. They're more likely to pursue goals, be more energetic, more likely to be hired, and less likely to be fired. Optimism is a frame for how you view your world, and happiness is an emotion. Just 10% of happiness comes from individual circumstances, 50% from genetic inheritance, and 40% is uncharted. Do you know how to tell the difference between an optimist and a pessimist? An optimist wakes up in the morning and proclaims, God, it's a good morning. A pessimist wakes up in the morning and grunts, Good God, it's morning. Same morning, different view. After the fire, the third bricklayer knew all along that both London and St. Paul's Cathedral would be rebuilt better than ever. These seven characteristics are not unlike ingredients to a wonderful recipe. Incorporate these ingredients into your life and something wonderful transforms, you. In order to make these ingredients easier to remember, I've repackaged them into a skipism that I call the seven Fs. Faith, family, friends, food, fun, fitness, focus. What a recipe for life. Bon Appetit. Laugh, think, and cry. Most of us can remember what has been called the greatest college basketball game of all time the 1982 NCAA championship game that featured North Carolina State upsetting the favored University of Houston Cougars. I personally will never forget Coach Jim Valvano running on the court, all of his players already paired up with another teammate, desperately looking for someone to embrace. That scene is in heavy rotation in the opening sequence for every NCAA tournament broadcast. But most importantly for me, and I'm sure for many others, is the feeling of wanting to jump through the TV screen and embrace Jim Valvano. That scene has never left me. In fact, it has provided the inspiration and my personal goal to be sincerely happy for other success as I was for Jim Valvano at the end of that game in 1982. Ten years later, after that famous game, and only a few months before losing his battle to cancer, Jim Valvano received the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award. And in front of thousands of supporters and millions of TV viewers, he challenged us to do three things every day. The following is a small piece from that famous speech. To me, there are three things we should do every day. We should do this every day of our lives. Number one is to laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is to think. 
you should spend some time in thought. Number three, you should have your emotions move to tears. Could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. The laugh and think every day are easy to comprehend, and most agree are doable. But what about the cry every day? Do we really want to cry every day? Jim Valvano didn't mean a sad cry as much as he meant what I describe as a Holy Spirit cry. You know, if there's one part of the Holy Trinity that is both underpreached and misunderstood, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ within us. And if you started to cry in church when that praise and worship song tugged at your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. If you see a father and a grown son embrace at a restaurant and you find yourself getting watery eyes, that's the Holy Spirit. I think that's what Jim Valvano meant when he said, think, laugh, and have your emotions move to tears every day. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People Stephen Covey, in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Our Personal Change, said that we should do the following. Number one, be proactive. Being proactive means being responsible, taking the initiative, choosing your attitude and moods, and taking those victim glasses off and putting the victor glasses on, and being accountable. Number two, begin with the end in mind. And beginning with the end in mind means plan ahead and set those goals. Knowing your purpose and meaning. Understanding the mission and vision. Number three, put first things first. And putting first things first means that you prioritize, you work a schedule, you follow your plan, you're disciplined, you're organized. Number four, think win-win. Balance what you want with what other people want. And you make deposits in other people's emotional bank account. You practice conflict resolution. You practice forgiveness and reconciliation. Number five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. How do you do that? You do this by active listening. In being here now, put yourself in other people's shoes. Don't interrupt other people while they're talking and be patient with other people. Synergize. You appreciate the differences of other folks in what we described in the social styles model. You practice teamwork. You practice creativity and problem solving and humility. Number seven, sharpen the saw. Sharpen your mind, your body, and your spirit. How would you rate yourself on these seven habits of highly effective people? Which ones need improvement? Rich habits. 
A certified financial planner and CPA, Tom Corley, wrote a book entitled Rich Habits, where he breaks down a five-year study on 233 wealthy people defined as having an annual income of over $160,000 or more than a liquid net worth of $3.2 million or more. And 128 people defined as having an annual income of less than $35,000 or less than a liquid net worth of $5,000 or less. In his book, he was able to separate rich habits and poor habits. He explains that everyone has rich habits and some poor habits, but we should strive for more rich habits than poor habits. Here are a few of his findings. Rich people always keep their goals in sight. I focus on my goals every day. Rich people who agreed with this statement, 62%. Poor people, only 6%. Number two, they keep their cool. I've been known to lose my temper. Rich people who agreed with this statement, 19%. Poor people who agreed with this statement, 43%. Number three, they don't watch a lot of TV. I watch TV one hour or less per day. Rich people who agree with this statement, 67%. Poor people, 23%. Question number four, I love reading. Rich people who agree with this statement, 86%. Poor people, 26%. Question number five, they go above and beyond in the office. I do more than my job requires. Rich people who agree with that statement, 81%. Poor people who agree with that statement, 17%. They monitor their health. I count calories every day. Rich people who agree with this statement, 57%. Poor people who agree with that statement, 5%. They watch what they say. I always say what's on my mind. Rich people who agree with that statement, only 6%. Poor people, 69%. The power of a handwritten note. A handwritten note is indeed a lost art, as we've become way too dependent on electronic communication and, to be honest, a little lazy. While authenticity is the key, a handwritten note can definitely assist in giving one the edge. But most importantly, It's just plain classy. The following are a few tips on what I consider to be the anatomy of a good note. These tips come from many years of me staring at a blank piece of paper, wondering what the heck to say. The anatomy of a great note. Make it short and sweet. I receive a fair amount of thank you notes from those who attend my workshops. My attention span is not what it used to be. While I read every sentence for the most part, if it goes on way too long, I start to scan. It's a note, not an epistle. Step number one of writing that great note. The introduction sentence. The reason for writing. I usually start my notes with just a short note too. I don't remember where I picked that up, but I like it, and if nothing else, it gets me started. For example, I might start a note with just a short note to let you know how much I enjoyed our conversation last night at the Chamber of Commerce dinner. 
or just a short note to thank you for lunch yesterday. Step number two, personalize the appreciation. The second sentence should support and reinforce the first sentence. For example, I especially enjoyed the stories you told me about your children and the success they're having in your company. Or, the advice you shared with me on how best to engage my employees was extremely helpful. The second sentence personalizes the note and lets the recipient know you're just not writing the note out of self-interest. Step number three, assurance. This sentence simply lets them know you're there for them. Greg, if I can ever be of assistance to you, please do not hesitate to call upon me. Notice how I started this sentence with the recipient's name. It's always a nice touch to start the note with his or her name and use it at least once within the body of that note. Everyone loves to hear their name. Step number four, reiteration. The last sentence simply reminds the recipient while you're writing and adds just another opportunity to show sincere appreciation. I usually end with, again, thank you for the time you spent with me yesterday. Again, thank you for the gift. Number five, the closing words. A good friend of mine usually ends his notes with cheers. This might be too informal for most notes, but I always enjoy his correspondence. I typically end with my best, kind regards, or sincerely are always options. Step number six, your signature. Assuming you have personalized stationery with your name somewhere on that note, I wouldn't worry too much about being legible. Just make sure you sign it. For my younger workshop participants, I urge them to make their signature look more presidential versus the first time you mastered cursive writing in grade school. Packing other people's parachute. A friend of mine tells the story of a U.S. Navy sailor he accidentally met several years after that sailor had actually saved his life. He was sitting in a restaurant in Kansas City as a man about two tables away kept looking over at him. He didn't recognize him. A few minutes into his meal, the sailor stood up, walked over to my friend's table, looked down at him, pointed his finger in his face and said, you're Captain Plum. My friend looked up and said, yes, I'm Captain Charlie Plum. The sailor said, you flew fighter jets in Vietnam. You were on the aircraft Kitty Hawk. You were shot down, you parachuted into enemy hands, and spent six years as a prisoner of war. My friend said, how in the world did you know all of that? The sailor replied, because I packed your parachute. My friend, Captain Charles Plum, United States Navy retired, is the author of I'm No Hero and travels the world telling this powerful story. The following is a summary of a recent conversation I had with my friend, Captain Charlie Plum. Greg, after that encounter, I was speechless. I staggered to my feet and held out a very grateful hand of thanks. This guy came up with the perfect response. He grabbed my hand and said, I guess it worked. Indeed it did, my friend, I said, and I must tell you, I've said many prayers of thanks for your nimble fingers, but I never thought I'd have the opportunity to express my gratitude in person. He asked, were all the panels there? Well, I said, I must be honest, of the 18 panels in that parachute, 
I had 15 good ones. Three were torn, but it wasn't your fault. It was mine. I jumped out of that jet fighter at a high rate of speed and very close to the ground. That's what tore the panels in the chute. It wasn't the way you packed it. Now let me ask you a question, I said. Do you keep track of all the parachutes you've packed? Now what follows is perhaps the most significant part of the story. No, he responded. It's enough gratification for me just to know that I've served, responded the man who packed my parachute. I didn't get much sleep that night. I kept thinking about that man. I kept wondering what he might have looked like in a Navy uniform, bib in the back, bell-bottom trousers, and a Dixie cup hat. I wondered how many times I might have passed him on the board the Kitty Hawk. I wondered how many times I might have seen him and not even said good morning or how you doing or anything like that. You see, I was a fighter pilot and he was just a sailor. But how many hours did that sailor spend at that long wooden table in the bowels of that ship weaving the shrouds and folding the silks of those life-saving parachutes? I'm ashamed to admit that at the time, I could have cared less until one day my parachute came along and he packed it for me. How's your parachute packing coming along? Who looks to you for strength in times of need? And perhaps more importantly, who are the special people in your life who provide the encouragement you need when the chips are down? Plum continued, perhaps it's time right now to give those people a call and thank them for packing your parachute. I needed a variety of parachutes when my plane was shot down over enemy territory. I needed a physical parachute, a mental parachute, an emotional parachute, and most importantly, a spiritual parachute. I'm often asked, how did you do it, Commander? How did you survive six years in a prisoner of war camp? I could have never done it. My answer is always, of course you could. My secret for enduring six years of hell is really not a secret at all. First and foremost, I had faith in an omniscient God, knowing that his will would be done. I never doubted that I could persevere. I simply trusted God's promise to answer my prayers. I also loved my country its people, and its freedoms. I realized that because of the human element, mistakes could be made. But in growing up, I had discerned that most people in this great land are honorable and compassionate. If it had not been so, I would not have accepted the commission to protect those ideals. Second, I had self-discipline. It would have been easier to avoid torture by succumbing to my captives' interrogations. It would have been easier to assume helplessness by blaming an evil world. I could have rationalized myself into mental and physical paralysis. Quite simply, I could have just simply laid the bricks. However, strict self-obedience gave me the ability to persevere. Third, I had pride. I was proud to know an omnipotent God. I was then and continue to be proud of my country and its heritage. I was proud of my family. I was proud of myself. So I will ask again, who packed your parachute?